We three Brexit ministers are Offering Brussels deals from afar Customs, union, trade, communion Paid with a crunchy bar Oh, Brexit wonder, Brexit dream Things are better than they seem Westward leading Trump is tweeted We're the cats that get the cream Bugger all to offer have I All those foreigners need not apply On our island we've a free hand Selling stuff on the sly Oh Brexit wonder, Brexit dream Things are better than they seem Westward leading Trump is tweeting We're the cats that get the cream that was the cast of Brexitus the Musical with a special Brexmas carol for you. Hello and welcome to A Very Romaniac's Christmas. We've decked the halls with boughs of sovereignty, Liam Fox is roasting on an open fire, and we've taken a week off to recharge our batteries after a year of hardcore Brexology. In this special episode, we're going to be talking to our regulars about their high point and low point of 2017, plus their Romaniac Hero of the Year, and the important thing that everyone missed this year. I'm still Dorian Linsky, and in this half of the show, I've got Roz Taylor and Ian Dunt. We'll have Peter Collins and Naomi Smith later on. So take a break from searching for the euro in the pudding and relive the most embarrassing year in British political history since last year. <laughs> Ian, let's start with you. <laughs> OK, so I mean, my highlight is uh, the general election, um, which is a rather obvious thing to have chosen. But then the thing is that just as point of objective fact, it was clearly the thing that, you know, changed the, the dynamics of how things were operating. There is basically on the Brexit thing as before and after. If you remember when we started the year in January, January was bleak, man. Like, I mean, January was really... There was this real attempt to just break the back of those last people sort of holding out against this kind of stuff. Coming out from Christmas was incredibly depressing. And one after another, people that should be on side were basically just sort of giving up and just going, no, this is going to happen now. It's, it's got to happen. And not just that, but kind of shouting at us for even wanting to stand up for immigrants or wanting to stand up for a more plural society. It really it was quite a lonely sort of time. So, I mean, that was a really, really difficult period. And... I remember when she called the election, I just thought, oh, we're fucked. Like, I, I really thought that was it. She's going to get a majority of like 100, 150. They will be able to deliver some of the most poison. You know, that would be considered this complete vindication of that way of doing things. They will deliver not just a really hard Brexit, but punished economically, but just culturally and politically, this country is going to become such an ugly place. And then it didn't work out that way. And I'm not suggesting that it didn't work out that way because there was this mass national kickback for the open society or something like that. That wasn't what happened. But there was a fundamentally, sort of fundamentally British sort of, they saw the kind of the arrogance and the disdain of, of May. And I thought that there was a kickback against that. And it created a scenario in Parliament where no one could have control. It was basically a vote of no confidence in pretty much anyone. And that brought the project to a standstill where they, it rubbed out a lot of that democratic legitimacy that it had before and provided lots of opportunities that are there even now that we can use, even now when we look at Brexit and you know, we look at Commons votes and how tight they are, it's to do with this. So it was a moment for me of sort of getting back a bit of faith in my country and of, of sort of feeling that this project, that there were ways that we could chip away at it to try and bring it to a standstill a little more. It was still, until now, like just a really great moment. And that precise moment at 10pm when that exit poll came out, I laughed my ass off. 
And I just, and for minutes, I mean, it was seven minutes. I, I, I kept us with my friend and we get to just stop it and then we'd look at each other and then we'd start laughing again. And it was a genuine explosion of euphoric, pent-up joy that had been building for some time. And it had sort of a, a basic sense of natural justice. It was, it was great. What was your low point? <laughs> Come on. Oh, no. Let's now bring now, you now we're back to normal. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, that's what we used to. I mean, the low point was it was from that January period, and it was uh, it's the Vince Cable piece for the Statesman, which seems such a minor, you know, the combination of words. A Vince Cable piece for the Statesman can apparently be your low point of the year, but it really can. And it was because it, it was a Lib Dem, and not only a Lib Dem, but one that I thought of quite highly, you know, really intelligent. He comes out, he does this speech, this speech he does this piece. And where he basically says, look, we've got to give up on freedom of movement. And he knows what that means. It's not just a freedom of movement thing. Although for me, freedom of movement is my big Brexit red line. There's nothing I care about more than, than freedom of movement. Uh, there's nothing that even comes close. I think it's a crucial thing that the state doesn't have the right to tell people where they are entitled to live. But that goes. But then also, once that happens, you have to leave the single market. So that was basically Vince Cable. Vince Cable, of all people, basically giving up on any kind of soft Brexit, sort of throwing his weight behind the sort of Theresa May hard Brexit. I mean, there's no other way of interpreting that thing. He's now, you know, taken it back a bit. But I remember, and, and I'm not, you know, no enemies in the open society. Once someone's on board, they're on board. You do not hold these grudges against them, apart from with the exclusion of the five minutes that I'm going to use right now, really slagging them off for it. So you have that. And I just felt this was a this was sort of our lowest, really. And for this, for him to come out and write that, I, I remember it really took the wind out of me, to be honest. It really knocked me for six. And it made me feel as much that we were going to just lose this as anything I'd read. The fact that it was him, of all people, f- from that party, of all parties, saying this stuff, I just thought, yeah, we're gone. We're, we're absolutely done for. And it didn't turn out that way, but uh, that, that was a really bleak kind of moment for me and one that I struggle to get past when, I'm, when I now hear him saying much more sense than he was saying at the time. Well, he's going to be uh, a guest on the show shortly, so you better have a nice chat about it. I will. No, well, I, I will address this with him at length. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if indeed, he still if wants he's to still come on. on. <laughs> that I've said that. Yeah. Do come. <laughs> and what's the thing that everybody missed? Yeah, no, the important thing everybody missed was what was going on at WTO with uh, our schedules. And the reason that they missed it is because no one, even though everyone talks about the WTO, nobody gives two tugs of a dead dog's cock what actually goes on there. No one ever looks at what goes on there. And no one, you know, can bother to stay awake to the ending of a sentence that begins with the word trade schedules. So the schedules are basically a description of your relationship with the rest of the world. We have to separate ours from the EU. And the idea was always, oh, look, this will be a piece of piss. We could do this very, very easily. The WTO is this great free market utopia. We can all go down there. We'll be able to go back to our great swaggering imperial roots. And what actually happened was twofold, quite interesting. The first one was what could have been a problem with the EU was not a problem with the EU. Actually, this was an area where the politicians all dropped back and said to the technocrats, said to the technical guys, basically, you guys sort this shit out, which they did. They came up with solutions that they thought would work pretty well for themselves. But that everyone else didn't play ball. And the way they didn't play ball was pretty aggressive, surprisingly aggressive and quick and united. You know, countries like Australia, countries like America, countries that we would expect you know, to have our backs. This sort of absurdist notion that it's all a great big hug in world trade. And, oh, people go, oh, well, you're, you're Britain and we're Australia. So, of course, we'll get on and we'll have all of... That's not how it works. You know, in trade negotiations, you look after your own country. It's about the bottom line. And by doing what we did with something called tariff rate quotas, which I won't go into because I don't want to lose every single person that's listening to this. Basically, what we'd done is we had said to them, you're going to get the same amount of exports to us at that tariff rate, but you're not going to have any flexibility in terms of where it goes. So, again, this old sort of thing of saying to people... 
help us minimize the damage of our own actions rather than we're giving you something special to achieve. And the fact that that was so complicated at WTO level told you quite a bit about the fact that there is no safety net from hard Brexit. You go to the WTO and you can very easily face a series of extremely aggressive litigations by people that you would otherwise consider to be your partners and very, very close allies. You have to be very, very careful. There's no safety net from WTO. At the WTO, this should be more widely talked about because it is absolutely key to the way the dynamics work and the kind of options that we have if things don't go right at the table in Brussels. But of course, it isn't, partly because it's very, very boring and also partly because it doesn't suit the narrative of the Brexiters. And finally, who's your Romaniac hero? My Romaniac hero, I don't think any, he'd be very happy for me to say this. I don't know him at all. I've never really spoken to him. But it's, it's Faisal Islam from Sky News. Who I think because, you know, you for Romaniacy sort of stuff, you don't really want to be seen as too Romaniacy. You want to be seen as completely impartial. Are you outing him? Oh, I'm not. I don't, I don't have any idea what his, what his, his views are. I always have a, there's a weird thing when you do TV news that if you look in the eye of the presenter as you answer this stuff, I think you can have a pretty good idea of how they voted because when there's, there's a bunch of them, they're studiously, you know, sort of impartial, but there's a sort of smile in the eye as you talk and you're like, yeah, you voted Remain. And there's others that they look at you like they want to fucking butcher you. But it's only in, <laughs> it's only in the eyeball. You know what I mean? The rest of the face is sort so of... So what did Faisal Islam do that impressed you so much? I mean, he has basically day in, day out, dug into details of what is involved on each issue. And that's in Parliament. He's been doing it at the WTO. He's doing it in Brussels. He's doing it with industry. Over and over, he is doing the classic thing of inform the public about what is going on with actual details. He's presenting them in a compelling manner, in an easily consumable manner that anyone could, could grab hold of. With a little two-minute bit on the news, you feel like you genuinely know a bit more than you did before that two-minute bit began. He is doing what should be the meat and potatoes of how TV news operates. Now... Sky, I think, has been having, despite all of the complaints people of similar politics to myself of what Sky is and Rupert Murdoch, I think Sky has been having a much better Brexit than the BBC has. It's been much more critical and been imposing much more scrutiny. And he, I think, has been, by some distance, the best person in broadcast media, which is still where most people get their news, at looking at the reality of what Brexit entails. He's done a really, really good job, and I think he deserves to be commended for it. Now, Ross Taylor, we're going to start at the bottom, work our way up. What was your low point? My low point. My low point was the hatred, the way that over the course of the year, things have solidified, sometimes on both sides, but I think particularly on the Leave side, I would say that. But the amount of unnecessary division and cultural divides that have been stoked up and perpetuated by the mainstream press in particular, but also on social media generally. And I think that was completely unnecessary. I think... It has uh, cemented people's views in a way that is very, very unhelpful. And it's meant that we don't talk about the important stuff. We talk about how much we dislike each other and how stupid X, Y and Z you know, are. And we could have been talking about some of the really enormous problems that are facing this country. We could have been building houses, lots and lots of houses. And we're not. We're just still hating on each other. Well, it's so reckless, isn't it? I think... You know, the thing is that you've got this divide that's been exposed by the referendum and the way so many people were just like, great, let's make this divide deeper. Yeah. And you, just think, you know, there will be consequences. You can't just go, well, uh, you know, our side will win this. Yeah, the traitors, the mutineers, all that language is just so unnecessary. It started with the uh, attacks on the judges and then it became attacks on MPs and then it became attacks on anyone who still thought that leaving the EU wasn't necessarily a good idea, even though 
it was only 52, a 52-48 majority. It's extraordinary to me. And what was your, your high point then? My high point was... Uh, let's see, what was my high point? You were sorry, learning German again on the yeah, day. German, German, yeah, of course. Sorry, I've got I, I'm confusing high point, yeah. My high point, actually, was something I did on the day that Article 50 was invoked and by Theresa May, and that was starting to learn German. And that's, a, I know, a very personal thing, but... I began German, to be fair, at school, but I dropped it at the age of 13 because I couldn't deal with the idea of three different genders or something like that. My teenage brain just couldn't <laughs> deal with it, so I had to go with two, so I went with French instead, and I just had a minimal level of German, of German and I, in the end I did French at much more advanced level. Then I went back to German, partly because also my mother-in-law is German, and I, I got the sense that we could chat together, not about Brexit, I hasten to add, about almost anything but Brexit. And so I've kept with it and I've practiced German every single day since Article 50 was invoked and it's been fantastic and now I can have a conversation of sorts with my mother-in-law not about Brexit who incidentally is thinking about getting her German citizenship back even though she she married an Englishman in the 60s but that has been something I feel in a way that's something I wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for Brexit and it's actually made me appreciate parts of Europe uh, more than I did before. Brilliant. And uh, what do you think everyone missed? I think there was a lot of attention, a lot of excitement around the Supreme Court case. Now, I respect Gina Miller enormously, and I think what she did was very brave and ultimately very important in a, from a constitutional point of view because she established that Parliament ought to have a vote on uh, whether, whether, Brexit, whether we invoked Article 50 and went ahead with Brexit. But in the end, it meant absolutely nothing. It did nothing. In the end, the MPs were all whipped into line and and, and basically it all passed without without much more than a whisk, whisk of, of, dis, of dissent. And so that was a point of constitutional law and constitutional principle, which became very important for quite a lot of Remainers. And it turned out to be almost completely irrelevant and it distracted us from what Brexit would actually mean and the effects it would actually have and it bored a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be interested and they said oh god this is tedious and it set the tone so that was what I think we all got wrong caring too much about whether Parliament had a vote on Brexit the important thing was how much Parliament scrutinises Brexit and actually Parliament is not doing a bad job of that and your Romaniac hero my hero is Ken Clark. Um, I really admire the way that Ken Clark has not retired despite his advanced age and stands up in the Commons and makes important, articulate points about what Brexit will mean and about the craziness of what's going on. If you look at someone of his generation, like uh, Michael Heseltine in the Lords, of course, so it's not going to stand up in the Commons, but you see him and you see him interviewed in front of his lovely bookcase and wherever he lives. And it just doesn't have the same impact because he's not in the Commons and he's not making those points. And Ken Clark could just have a nice, quiet retirement. And he's chosen not to do that. He's chosen to carry on fighting. And he's, I think, the only Tory who has done that. Is there anyone under the age of 75 who you think is uh, uh, doing work as good as Ken? Oh. Does it? Do you just have to get to the point where you have no fucks left to give, and you can just 
sort of stand on principle and there's no none of these other kind yes. of concerns. Yes, you have not to care anymore because everybody, all those MPs, their futures are so tied up in the in patronage and in having to obey the whips and in order to stay in line. I mean, there are, there are ones, people like Dominic Grieve who are doing important stuff and, and Hilary Benn and so on who are doing important stuff on committees and I respect that. But yeah, you have to get to the stage when you have nothing left to lose and you then you can stick to your principles. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Brexit is the height of folly, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Staying in Europe's a no-brainer, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Proud to say I'm a Remainer, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. The cast of Brexit as the musical there with another special recording for Romaniacs. That's James Sanderson as Boris Johnson, Ailey Scott as Theresa May and James Taylor Thomas as Michael Gove with lyrics by David Sheriff and piano by Frederick Appleby. Welcome to part two of our special Brexmas edition. We really can't stay, but baby, it's cold outside the EU. As Santa prepares to enjoy one night of unparalleled freedom of movement and tariff-free gift-giving, we're discussing the highs, lows and just-don't-knows of the year in Brexit with Naomi Smith, renowned Remainer and ex-chair of the Social Liberal Forum, and our business expert, Peter Two Brains Collins, and later on, me. Naomi, let's start with your choices. Let's start low. My lowest point was 18th of April when the Prime Minister called the snap general election. Um, I've never really bought into the fantasy that she had purposefully put Brexiteers in charge of uh, Brexit so that they would have to sell hard decisions to the public. Um, I also had her pinned as a bit of a a reluctant Remainer too. So I was pretty sure she wanted to pull off a hard Brexit. uh, And when she announced that there was going to be a snap general election like most of the polls and most of us, I assumed she'd win a landslide and that the chances of us defeating Brexit had completely evaporated. Is this leading us to the high point? So maybe it is. <laughs> um, my high point, therefore, was that exit poll on the 8th of June. Um, until that moment, I'd been very much bracing myself for um, a solid Tory majority. I think we knew it wasn't going to be landslide by by that stage um, and that that would still make a hard Brexit pretty inevitable. But as soon as I saw that exit poll, I knew that the window had opened up that she'd screwed up, screwed it up, um, and that that window seemed to have opened a bit in our favour, uh, giving us an opportunity to steal back some ground. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. And your uh, hero of the year? So my hero of the year is going to be um, Caroline Lucas and the Green Party. So once the general election was called, the Progressive Alliance kicked in um, to try and stop some of the hard Brexiteers in marginal seats from winning. Most of the other political leaders of progressive parties um, kept very tight-lipped, um, although honourable mention to Vince Cable, who of course wasn't leader of the Liberal Democrats at the time, but he did encourage people to vote for Rupert Huck over the Lib Dem candidate in Ealing. But, but other than that, it was only Caroline Lucas, who showed real leadership and encouraged local Green parties to consider not fielding candidates where Lib Dems and Labour stood a chance of defeating um, a hard Brexit Tory. And I believe that her intervention uh, cost Theresa May a majority. So she is my hero of 2017. And what do you think we missed this year? Well, there's um, 
something that I think a lot of people missed, uh, which was um, that Stella Creasy ran a campaign to ensure that women in Northern Ireland could access terminations um, for free if they were able to travel to England for the procedure. Um, Abortion in Northern Ireland remains illegal in almost all circumstances, but her amendment um, managed to get signatures of over 100 MPs from across the Commons, including a Conservative, um, and the government capitulated, so Creasy withdrew her amendment, um, and those women can now be treated free of charge um, uh, under NHS England. And this is important for two reasons. One, um, it highlighted very on, uh, very early on, sorry, um, uh, the fragility of May's dodgy deal with the DUP. And two, it showed the power of good opposition and effective backbench rebellion. So come on, Labour, now's the time. Um, start voting against the government rather than, rather than with them and, and keep us in the single market and customs union. Can I just add that Stella Creasy's just done it again. Um, she prompted the Chancellor to close this st- scandalous loophole whereby uh, you and I have to pay for um, capital gains if we have a second home and we sell it, but foreign millionaires don't have to. And you know the, the, they did that because of the pressure she put. It shows that parliamentarians, if they do get their act together, this is the time for Parliament to exercise a bit of sovereignty over the executive. Well, yeah, there's a lot of sort of silliness about kind of ideological battles between different wings of of Labour and, and Stella's sort of Creasy is sort of considered to be on the wrong side of that. But, you know, if, I do think it's important to look at what are people actually doing? What are you achieving? You know, if Stella Creasy is achieving more than Richard Bergen, then more power to her. And it doesn't really matter mm. which faction she's in. And it mm. is nice to be reminded that, that there's a reason why people become MPs and there's a reason why politicians are not the contemptible shower that we often <laughs> think they are. Not all of them. <laughs> Not all of them. OK, moving on to Peter. How about your take on the year? Where, where would you like to start? OK, well, I want to put my hero and highlight rolled into one. It's Ruth Davidson. Surprise, Yay. surprise again. <laughs> um, her comments during the party conference that she would sack Boris Johnson <clears throat> and just for coining that phrase, reckless optimism, that just sums up for me what's wrong with David Davis and co., um, it also, as I said, I think in the podcast at the time, just hearing all of that and the stuff that happened at the time made me think, I think we're at peak Johnson. And that's where, we're, you know, it's downhill for him from, from here on. Um, also, the, the stuff that Ruth Davidson this week talking, you know, using the opportunity of the Irish um, uh, border confusion to say, actually, why don't we just stay in the single markets and the customs union? Uh, a very good point. And she's got her 13 MPs at Westminster uh, to, to back her on saying we don't want to have a separate deal for Northern Ireland. So she's contributing, seems to me, to pushing us towards, at the very least, a softer Brexit. I hope so. Is Ruth Davidson everybody's sort of favourite? Well, Every non-Tory's favourite Tory? I mean, Ken Clark aside, maybe. Even I am Tory <laughs> curious when it comes to Ruth Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> And I did admit that I, I almost joined the Scottish Conservatives when there was that vague suggestion that she might break away and start a new, more socially liberal party. Still not too late to do that, Ruth. At low point. Now, my low point is, um, I, because I take I had different assumptions and hopes from Naomi, my low point is the election outcome, not the election being called. Because uh, at the time, I thought that if Theresa May had got a solid majority she would have used it to face down the hard Brexiteers, being a Remainer herself and having actually a lot of Remain voting Conservatives, that she would have then gone to Brussels and said, look, I've pushed these Rees Mogs to one side, I'd like an after Brexit, a nice, soft uh, Brexit of the sort we talked about at the time, if you remember, uh, that would be, you know, not not at all bad for business. It wouldn't it, it wouldn't be membership of the European Union, but it would be a decent outcome. Um, you know, we... But then the the, the the low point was as when when we ended up on the day after this because 
that clearly wasn't going to happen. Now it's looking better. Now I think Naomi's view is is more realistic, thankfully. Uh, but it looked pretty bad on that day. And the other thing that I, made it a low point for me personally as not a Labour supporter is that Corbyn, Macdonald and their shower didn't do as badly as I felt they deserved to, I'm afraid. <laughs> Oh, also, we didn't get a nice, reasonable liberal bench to no. provide a voice of reason. So all lots of reasons to be glum on uh, the day after but the election. They did nearly double the number of MPs. Sure. But it would have been nice Probably to have more, wouldn't it? Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what did we all uh, miss? Well, I thought um, one thing that we missed... Um, we've touched on it today, Um, I'm determined to get people to think about this, is that all the other countries in Europe uh, are not just sitting there waiting for us. They've got their own stuff and they're getting fed up of all of this. The German coalition, Mm -hmm. their talks failed. They can't form a government. In France, Macron is trying to push through his reforms and not getting very far, meeting resistance. Spain's still got the Catalan crisis. Dutch MPs have spent 200 and odd days negotiating and only just have now a coalition. Uh, The coalition in Italy is gearing up for an election next year with Silvio Berlusconi's hard right party making a comeback. They've got other stuff to worry about. We have to remember that we shouldn't expect them to just sit there and do what's going to please us. But but we're Britain, Peter. Well, indeed, yes. <laughs> we're the most. We're the stars of the show. Yes, indeed. It's our name is above the credits of the world. <laughs> <laughs> if only. So, Dorian, what's your low point of the year? I think it was it was actually the same day. You know, the, the, when the election was declared, it was the males crushed the saboteurs cover because I just thought one mm. this is. This is exactly the hooray for the black shirts yeah. paper. I've been reading the Spanish Civil War recently and the male's enthusiasm for Franco. And it was like that strand is still there. And it just represented, didn't start, but represented this kind of new, savage, destructive ugliness. And that any hope that one might have had that there would be kind of some sort of reason, generosity, some attempt at a kind of consensus was just was just gone and it was going to be just kind of a knockdown, drag out fight. Mm. And it was going to be unpleasant and it led to um, just so much nastiness, you know, like the kind of toxic Leave.eu Twitter account, you know, and harassment. Mm. And I just thought it did not need to get to this. To Le- the, to it led this to state. death threats. Yeah. Not just harassment, yeah, absolutely horrendous. And to and to be sort of to to be toying with that, and it seems like literally having learnt fuck all from the death of Joe Cox, you know, mm. the way that mm. the people are not just on on that side of the fence, but you know, the way that the male particularly just seems to encourage this kind of like hatred of MPs and the sense that they are kind of enemies of the people, mm. you know, really, you know, hideous rhetoric that takes you back to the 30s mm. um, I thought was kind of like I just felt the country was becoming debased So from your low point to your high what made you happy? What's made me happy has been the last month or so and this sort of growth in, in opposition to Brexit which is partly helped by the kind of staggeringly generous incompetence of you know David Davis and the Brexiters but things like the sort of collapse in this whole idea of the reliever you know that these these remainers that went, oh, well, it, it has to happen anyway. Those numbers have really dropped. Mm. The number of people that would be up for a second referendum. Just the kind of conversations even that we would be having on this podcast. There's a kind of, uh, I think there's a sort of a dynamism and that week to week you feel kind of public opinion shifting. The and you can't be finally on our side kind of thing. Yeah, and that's, that is really exhilarating when you consider how low... Uh, I think we felt probably at the beginning of the year before the before the podcast started. You know, it was just it was it really was astonishingly depressing, and it was just like, how are we going to live with this awful situation? The idea that one might actually be able to change it 
you know, or the fact that the, the people in charge of it might be so bad at it that they might end up thwarting it. Self-sabotaging was kind of beyond my wildest dreams. So the last, the last few weeks have been magic. And who's your hero, Dorian? Well, I'm sure my London bias here, but I feel like... Um, I feel like I have this real sort of craving for politicians who actually seem to be saying roughly what they're thinking and seem to be speaking up for kind of for sort of values that that actually make me um, proud of Britain rather than ashamed. Um, And of course, you know, Peter Mitchell, I think Ruth Davidson is one of those characters. I think Stella Creasy is one of those characters. And for me, as a Londoner, you know, I think Sadiq Khan has done a great deal in terms of the kind of um, not only obviously was he an ardent Remainer and he does kind of like pop up in a lot of these kind of Brexit um, debates now is that the the kind of way he presents London to the world as still this kind of welcoming, progressive, forward-looking, multicultural sort of city. It's And, you know, he's not in a position like Keir Starmer where he's actually being able to change things, but he's also not being hampered by having to deal with the Labour leadership. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, he's able to, within his kind of remit of London, present... Uh, a vision of a kind of Britain, and I don't think it has to be confined to London. I think these kind of values can, uh, can be found across the country. Um, th- that does actually make me feel optimistic. Indeed. Well, <clears throat> what did you think about Sadiq Khan being a sort of one-man opposition to Donald Trump, which is better than no opposition to Donald Trump? Well, of course, it's hard to sort of. You know, we, I mean, we concentrate on Brexit here, but it's hard to be sort of you know, to think about Brexit without thinking about Trump at the same time. I mean, these are the kind of twin grotesques of our time and again you know that kind of the weakness and the vacillation and the kind of fence sitting that you got from the government on donald trump you know it doesn't matter how atrocious the things he says doesn't matter how insulting and again you know sadiq khan is in a position where he can just say the thing that you want him to say and and you can say okay right well if he was in a different job oh well he'd have to he he might be sort of as compromised as anyone else but to actually have someone stand up and go, no, this is what we think of you. But I, I mean, I, I, I think it is tremendous. And I also don't think it's true because Andy Burnham isn't as good on a lot of these openness and free movement issues as Sadiq Khan is. And arguably he's as free mm. to do it uh, as Sadiq would be. So I, I, I applaud you for making the mayor of London your hero of the year. <laughs> and what's the thing that you think everybody might have missed? I think there needs to be a bit more sort of holistic analysis of what is sort of wrong with this country. And I think that, you know, sometimes when I'm arguing with, uh, I sometimes will argue with kind of uh, people about Corbyn on Twitter. I try not to, but but sometimes. And they, and they kind of just go, well, he doesn't have to talk about, you know, why do you want him to talk about Brexit? You know, when he's also talking about all these other things that matter, like austerity and the NHS and universal credit. And like, because they're intertwined, because, you know, I think austerity... Um, which I think it was basically sort of moral and economic crime is one of the reasons why people were despairing enough with the status quo to go for Brexit in the first place. You know, staffing of the NHS, you know, you can't talk about the NHS with it and just ignore Brexit mm. when you consider the implications that has for whether that be funding or um, staffing. And so I feel like part of being sort of serious and compassionate about some of the areas that voted leave in large numbers you know, you've, you've got to think about the kind of whole picture and the, the things that could have been done. You know, for example, if you've got an area um, where there's a, a large number of um, EU migrants coming in, and that's good for the economy in some ways, might be a strain on services. When you've got austerity, which means that you're not being able to therefore fund the services to deal with that, you are creating 
sort of you're creating racial tension you're creating resentment and i feel like that in much though i, I obviously want to reverse brexit but i i do also want us to address all the things that led people who were not hardcore Eurosceptics to vote that way in the first place, and that it and that it sort of ties up. And Corbyn, to his credit, he's very good at representing one half of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, join him up. I've said it on the podcast before, but when you look at Ipsos Mori polls ahead of the ninety-seven general election, immigration wasn't listed uh, in the top ten issues. Uh, of 95% of voters. You fast forward 20 years where we haven't built enough homes, we haven't invested in public services, and all of a sudden you have an in-out referendum where people react exactly as, as, as you said, on the basis of how hard their lives now are. Because it's not just cultural. It's not just drumming up of xenophobia by the tabloids. Obviously, that's a, that's a big part of it. But it is often what people can feel. And if they are feeling the economic pinch, if they are feeling that they have to wait too long for a GP's appointment, and they therefore take that out on immigrants, take that out on the EU, these things are all connected. And whatever happens with Brexit, you cannot ignore um, a lot of these kind of deep-rooted problems, you know, which are going to be going on. You know, these are Mm. problems that we we really have to concentrate on. And we can't concentrate on them because all the energy is being taken up by Brexit. And so we're not fixing any of the problems that led to that result. And a beautiful demonstration of that and again another story that in in normal times would have taken up the whole of the news for a week and led to resignations was the quitting of the social mobility team a great idea that the government set up a cross-party group to look at social mobility alan milburn uh, former labor minister and julian shepherd from the conservatives etc etc they all quit because they said brexit means we're just not doing anything we're not making any progress at all again why wasn't that given more play in the media because there's so much other stuff going on. It's just desperately sad to think of all the things that are not being thought about and all the problems that are just being kicked down the road because we're all distracted from by this unnecessary kind of energy hole. And acts of self-harm. <sighs> Merry Christmas. And that's all for 2017. Thanks to all of our guests and regular presenters this year. Thanks to our faithful listeners for making the show such a success. And thanks to our Patreon backers for helping to keep the show free to access. If you want to throw a few pennies into our crumpled Dickensian hat, go to Romaniacs.com and find out how. We're going to finish up with a final Brexitmas carol from the cast of Brexitus the Musical. Thanks for listening. And for me, Dorian Linsky, plus Ian Dunt, Ros Taylor, Peter Collins, Naomi Smith, and producers Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison, have a great Christmas, and here's to a happy, unified New Year. God bless us, everyone. Even poor, tiny little Michael Gove. Ding dong gloomily below, the Brexit balls are singing. Progress is so very slow, with all the mud they're slinging. Losers, stick with us, remainers. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.